Church, will you pray with me our prayer for illumination? Gracious God, great teacher, bearer of peace, helper of all, we seek your wisdom. Open our hearts and minds to your word and to possibilities yet unseen. Amen. Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Peter chapters 4 and 5. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I watched a TED Talk this week. Anybody watch TED Talks anymore? Yeah? Joni and I are watching. We're keeping TED Talks alive. Anyway, I was watching a talk given by Dr. Allison Ledgerwood, a psychology researcher at UC Davis. Dr. Ledgerwood talked about how people think and how we view things. Dr. Ledgerwood used herself as an example. She talked about how as an academic, as a researcher, she uh, spends most of her time submitting papers for publication. And she said she'll be going along and she'll get a paper that's uh, going to be published and she gets a high. And it lasts until about lunch. Then she comes back down. And then she goes along and she submits a paper for publication and it's rejected and she gets a low. And she said she kind of sticks there. Why isn't it being published, she wonders. What was wrong with it? What was wrong with them? Why didn't they see the value in my work? Is my work valuable? And she said she gets another paper published and she gets a little high, but then she comes back down because she's stuck in this new normal that's been established because her paper wasn't deemed valuable to one publisher. She said she goes along this up and down, up and down, up and down, seeking uh, reassurance of her work. So why does failure and negativity seem to stick in our minds so much more than a success or positivity? Have you been there, you do something, maybe you have a great day at work, but there's that one comment that was made, and what do you go home thinking about? What does the matter with that guy? What did I do? If you don't do this, God bless you, because you are a rarity among humanity. We focus on the one thing that gets said that is contrary to our positivity. Later in her video, Dr. Ledgerwood talks about how we frame things in our mind, kind of like, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. When we're presented with a glass that's partially full, do we see the glass as a glass half full, which is a gain for us? Or do we see a glass half empty, which is a perceived loss? 
And you might think, what's the difference? What, is, what does it matter how I see the glass, half full or half empty? But it matters because it speaks to our general disposition of how we view things. And if we see things negatively, especially at our first impression, our first perception, then we have a hard time undoing that understanding. Dr. Ledgerwood gives a really interesting example. In her research, they brought uh, two groups of people in. Group A, they described a medical procedure. Said it was a new procedure, they described it in detail, and then they said it has a 70% success rate. And the group overwhelmingly voted in favor of the procedure. Group B, they brought in, they described the same procedure using the same verbiage, the same way. They said it has a 30% failure rate. Group B overwhelmingly voted to not support the procedure, to not get the procedure. Same procedure, same results, framed and perceived differently. Here's the really interesting part, because you might think, well, yeah, but you told them 30% failure rate, so all they're thinking of is that the operation is not going to be a success. They can't, in their minds, flip it to, well, wait a minute, if 3 out of 10 are a failure, 7 out of 10 are a success. They can't do that flip, even when presented with the truth. So they went back to group A, who voted in favor of the procedure with a 70% success rate, and they said, you know, Yes, there's a 70% success rate, but there's a 30% failure rate. Now, people in the group are starting to reconsider. And the group, when asked again, votes again overwhelmingly. Now, they are not in favor of the procedure because they've been presented with the failure. So they could be talked out of the positive when the negative was introduced. Group B, who's not in favor of the procedure because of the 30% failure rate, when, they are re, when they're asked to reconsider and they say, you know, 30% failure rate, but that means 70% success rate, they continue to vote in opposition. They can't be talked out of it because their first impression was a perceived loss. And so they, they have a hard time flipping that. When, when granted the positive perception, we can be talked out of it, but we have a harder time being talked out of a negative understanding and negative perception. The procedure was the same, the outcome was ultimately the same, but their minds had been changed. You might wonder, what does this have to do with 1 Peter 4 and 5? What is she talking about? She's watched one too many TED Talks. Just as we suspected, humanity is predictable to a certain extent, and God knows us. And God knows that we're going to focus on the trials of our lives. In this letter in 1 Peter, we are confronted with the idea of suffering. How many are fans of suffering? Hillary, Paul, we got a couple. couple of fans. Good for you. Good for you, and you're going to find out why. Me, not a fan. If you introduce suffering into my life, I'm going to run. And we all know I don't run. I'm going to run the other direction. I'm not interested in times of trial. I'm not interested in times of suffering. I will try to avoid it at all cost. We as humanity will try to avoid pain and suffering at all cost. We sue over it. We seek reimbursement for pain and suffering in our legal system. Yet scripture says you will suffer. Scripture 
says we are guaranteed pain and suffering and trouble. In fact, in our reading today, it begins by saying, beloved, child of God, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come. I'm going to be surprised. Why is that? I'm going to be surprised. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be livid when the fiery trials come. Scripture says, don't even think it strange. Don't even think it out of the ordinary when you are faced with trial. And I have to admit, when I'm faced with trial, with suffering, I do everything in my power to reestablish my ordinary. This week was a struggle week for me. It was a very difficult week on all sorts of levels. And every day... I would wake up, it's a new day, Lord, new mercies every day. I'd wake up with my Polly Pocket self, and I'd say, today's going to be the day the tide turns. Today is going to be the day, and I would begin it with scripture and with positivity, and before I know it, sucker punch, trial. And I would say, Lord, this is my favorite prayer, God, we've talked about this. Don't you think God thinks we're cute? When I show up hot at his door, Lord, we've chatted about this. I've expressed my discomfort. I would appreciate an intervention, and then I wait. I know, Shirley, really? Really? What am am I doing? But see, when I get so far into a time of trial, I become the, the most important character in my story. Because I want to sit in my trial and I want to talk about it. You want to talk about it. Can you believe that? Can you believe he did that? I wish I had Shirley's uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, move on with life. That wasn't my gifting. That was her gifting, and I envy that in her. I I want to sit and talk about it because it gives me a perceived control. Because if I'm thinking about it and I'm talking about it and I'm dissecting it and I'm losing sleep over it and I'm sitting in it and I'm like sitting in the ashes and rubbing them all over myself, then I have perceived control over it. Then I can say, Lord, I'm working with all that I have on this problem and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. But what does scripture say to do? Does scripture say sit with it and dissect it and call your friends and call a committee meeting and talk about it and, and write about it? And no. That's not what scripture says. In fact, scripture says rejoice in it. Rejoice in your times of trial, which sounds absolutely ridiculous to me. Rejoice in your times of trial. My prayers don't become, thank you, Lord, for this time of trial. It becomes, please, Lord, save me from this time of perceived trial. We find scripture saying, Don't even think of it as out of the ordinary. This is your normal, Christian. Don't think of this trial as your glass being half empty. No, rejoice in this trial. Rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering. We look at our trials as cups not just half full, not just harmful to us, but we look at our times of trial as cups we would like to pass from us. Lord, take this, ease this. 
We see times of trial as unsustainable, unwarranted, certainly unwanted. But scripture is telling us that times of trial are part of our very identity as Christians. A couple months ago, Tevin and Heidi and I went with the Youth Fellowship kids to the walleye, Toledo walleye hockey game. It's always one of my favorite things to watch the hockey players talk about their faith in Jesus and then they go beat each other up. Like I want to go, let's have a reconvening of the faithful players Let's talk about that. So we went, and it just happened to be a breast cancer awareness night. And so everywhere around the arena, the ice was pink, the the players were wearing pink on their uniforms in solidarity, and then through the stands in the arena, you saw pink shirts. And you knew that those wearers of the pink shirts were survivors. And we could come to support them And we could raise awareness for them. And we could raise funding for them. But they are in a club of their own. You see, when when the pink shirt wearers, the members of this club that they didn't ask to be invited into, inducted into, the members of this club that they didn't want to become part of their identity because cancer had become part of their identity as individuals and as a collective community, When they look into the face of another person wearing a pink shirt, there's a different sort of awareness. You're looking into the eyes of a comrade in a fight that not everyone has fought. You're looking into the eyes of someone who knows what it's like to be sick and wonder if you'll be well again. The journeys may not be the same. The trials were different, but they shared a collective identity. Their shared identity bonded them in a way that we as outsiders cannot be bonded together. It's that same sort of thing with our shared identity with Jesus. We, how can we expect to not have times of trial when our Savior, the Son of God, went through such trial and such suffering? How can we think that we will not be targets because we are people of faith, when when Jesus, the Savior of our faith, was the greatest target of all. And that is why Scripture invites us to reconsider how we identify as Christians, how we identify as believers, as followers of Jesus. Scripture invites us to reevaluate how we view our own trials. I told the kids, I picked these scriptures months in advance. And isn't it funny how the God of all the universe knew that I was going to struggle this week? Because I, I told one of you this week, I'm a terrible scripture memorizer. My mother-in-law just would die a thousand deaths if she heard me admit this publicly. So 1 Peter 4 and 5 didn't really ring to me until I opened my Bible up this week. And I began to read, Beloved. Do not be surprised when you face a time of trial. And I went like this. Not interested. You're hilarious, God. You're hilarious. This is what you want me to preach about this week? I'm about ready to throw in the towel. I'm about ready to be done with this. And you're calling me to stand up and say, times of trials are times to rejoice. I was ready to pack it in. And God said, nope. You're going to preach about this, and you're going to live it. 
The word says when you suffer, you should rejoice, be glad with exceeding joy. Know you are blessed because God's glory rests upon you, because you are identified as a Christian. When you are identified as Jesus' followers, when you are identified with him, when you face trials and sufferings, you enter into that shared identity. You look into the eyes of someone who has faced trial greater than you ever will, and it checks your spirit. Just like the pink shirt-wearing survivors can share in one identity, we share in one identity as Christians, together as followers of Jesus, children of God, born of the Spirit, and we can look into the eyes of one another and the eyes of the one who suffered the greatest. So when we face trials and suffering, when we face distance from others who don't understand why we follow Jesus, when we face misunderstandings and even abuse, when we face the consequences of others' decisions and the misuse of their free will, know that you are not alone. Jesus felt it too. Other Christians feel it too. Jesus took it all. Jesus knew pain and hurt and disappointment. Jesus faced a trial greater than any we will face. And when we do face our trials, we are reminded of that. God said, beloved, don't even find it out of the ordinary. It's as ordinary as a Tuesday morning to face the fiery trial. Rejoice that you stand with my son, Jesus Christ. You're cute you're not special. I feel like we as a collective humanity are facing times of great trial right now, and so we need to turn to the scripture to ground us. We are reminded, don't be surprised when trials come. You're drawing closer to God. Cast your fear. You see me sitting in my ashes having my little pig pen pity party? That was me perceiving control over what was happening. God never said, Get control of your life. God said, cast your cares on me. I will care for you. It might seem crazy to rejoice in times of trial. God never intended trial for us, but God wanted us to have the fullness of life, the fullness of free will, and God knows us, and he knows where people exist, messiness exists, but where people are, God is also. Scripture says, humble yourself. You see, what happens, what happens when we decide that we are the central character in our story? What happened to me this week when I decided everything that was happening to me was about me and that it was almost too much to bear, God invites us to get back on mission, because when I'm focused on myself, I'm no longer on mission. When I'm focused on myself, I'm going to miss the person who's withdrawn from our community. If I'm just thinking about myself, I'm not wondering, where have they been? Maybe I should check on them. When I'm focused on myself, I'm not wondering how that grieving person is doing since their loss. When I'm focused on myself, I'm not seeing new faces in our church community prompting me to reach out and say, what brought you here today? Because many times when people come to our doors, something has driven them there. When I'm focused on myself, I miss the opportunity for worship with toddlers in my front yard in a bouncy house on holy ground. 
When I'm focused on myself, I miss the call from the funeral home that says, I have someone who's lost their mother and they don't have a church. Could you come? When I'm focused on myself, I miss the opportunity to baptize a 35-year-old dying single mother whose four-year-old daughter has never known her mom not to be sick. You see, that's why the enemy prowls around because all of those things happen this week also. That's why the enemy says, humble yourself. It's not about you. None of this is about you. It's about them. Get back on mission. What are you doing here? And that's what I said to myself and another church leader. I said, what are we doing? This is what we're going to argue about? There are people dying that don't know Jesus. There are people suffering true trials and suffering that don't know that there's a place that they can go that will love them and accept them and be there for them. They don't know. I'm going to invite Joni to come forward. Last Sunday in worship, we asked, could I get a microphone for her? Joni, you want to come on up? Last Sunday in worship, downstairs, one of the kids ran in to get the rest of the Ramirez kids, because they said there's just been an accident. Joni's going to share with you how God showed up for her family. You said it best that we needed God to show up in a big way, and he really did. Um, I know that God saved my son. And I know that you are a praying people because for evidence of your prayers that on Mother's Day, I'm still a mother. And God showed up in so many ways that as the story unfolded, and I talked to the boys last night because Elijah was, Heidi's son was riding with Parker when they crashed a four-wheeler on our property. And um, the bravery that Elijah showed, he didn't even know that he was injured until after, after it all, um, sitting in the hospital. After that, he said he realized that he was hurt too, but he had never ran so fast in his life to get back up to the house to let us know. So in Elijah's bravery, God was there. And the story goes that they were, um, I live on a farm, and my stepdad farms about 30 acres. One of the fields was planted, one of them was not. So in a young boy's mind, that's wide open play territory. Um, But after talking to the boys last night, Parker, who pushes boundaries like every 11-year-old boy, um, something told him to grab his helmet. So at the last second, he grabbed his helmet. It wasn't the full motorcycle riding helmet that he owns, but it was a pretty sturdy bike helmet. And uh, he grabbed that and put that on, and um, they were riding the unplanted field when the tall weeds and, and wild uh, flowers were um, kicking up and hitting him in the face. And he went to duck down and took his eyes off where he was going and he turned into the trees instead of into the open field. And when he said he looked up again, he was headed towards the tree. And he said, but it doesn't make sense, Mom, because I landed away from that. And um, 
And then he said, I remember um, Elijah running up to the house and thinking about it being so far away. But by the time that I had gotten outside, he was already halfway up the field. And he greeted me. He was walking to me. And he said, I don't remember the walk being that long, Mom. And suddenly he was back to me. Um, Another God moment is that uh, I got a little bit of flack for not even thinking about calling 911 uh, because my son was, he had walked up to me. So I went into mom mode and I was like, hey, get the towel, get my purse, get my cell phone, get in the car, let's go. And I told him to lean forward so he didn't choke on his own blood because a lot was gushing from his face. Um, but had I called the squad, it was already two or three miles down the road responding to another accident, responding to what we call Little Mexico between Sycamore and Tiffin. Uh, There's a dirt bike track, and there was another accident. So the squad was already there. So the squad would have had to come from somewhere else in order to get to us out in the middle of Sycamore. Uh, So I didn't think about it, but maybe God was in that too because I got him there faster probably than uh, he would have gotten by squad. And then God shows up again. Um, we walk into the emergency room and the full trauma team and Tiffin, the full trauma team was already ready because they were waiting on the kid in the BMX accident. So they assumed that we were the, the, motor, the motorbike accident. So they were already waiting for us. Um, <clears throat> and Parker never lost consciousness in any of this. And they, when we were told that he'd need to be lifelighted, <clears throat> they were going to lifelight him because there was so much blood and because they were afraid of the swelling in the blood, he would suffocate. So they were talking about a breathing tube, and my heart sank with all the stories of the breathing tube. And um, He didn't have to have one. He was strong enough the entire time to hold his own uh, suction piece, like you go to the dentist and you get that sucky thing that drives you crazy, uh, he insisted on holding his own, and he could do it. And he, he sucked his mouth out, and he held that the whole life light. And um, so he was, he was strong, and he pulled through on that. Um, so there was so many ways that God showed up, and we have been absolutely overwhelmed. And the amount of love and support that's flowed, my, my phone has blown up um, so much so that I, there was not enough hours in the day to answer how many prayers that were coming through. And uh, to see fifth grade boys tell each other that they love each other has been an amazing blessing. Um, there's been so many of Parker's friends that are, I love you, buddy, and hang in there, buddy, and they've uh, stopped by. And um, it's been truly amazing. But I was really struck by a question that Parker asked me, which was, if God is real, why did he use me as a lesson? And here's another God moment. Because I was like, "Mm." (laughs) but uh, something came over me and a boldness came over me that would only come from one place. And that is that that is assuming that bad things come from God. God is in the good moments. God is in the people that set aside the time to pray. God is in the prayer chain that went like wildfire to let all these people know 
God is uh, in the helmet. God is in the shorter walk up to the house. God is in getting them there, him to the hospital. God is in the trauma team already waiting for him. God is in the fact that he never lost consciousness. God had him holding that suction thing to suck out his mouth the whole time. Those are where we look for God. God is in those moments. But I know that he's really struggling, and so continue prayers on that one. Um, but I have thought about the moms who, whose kids didn't make it through moments like this. And my heart is hurt for those moms. And I'm so thankful, and every day I've thanked God that my son is alive, and I think, too, God offered us his son. God gave his son to us. And I was like, no, you don't get my son. Please, God, save my son. And he did that for us. And so I'm humbled. I'm humbled by that. And I know that my son's going to be okay. And I've had people say, well, so much has happened to you in your life. Uh, divorce, abuse, our house fire, um, so many things. But I told them, if I think like that, then depression wins. And I will not think like that. I will never see it another way. I know that God saved my son. And that's the bottom line. So thank you all, all of you who have prayed. And we'll continue to pray. We don't always get to see the results of our prayers. But that is why when God gives you a testimony, you are meant to share it. And that's why I knew I needed to stand before you guys today and let you know the results of your prayers. That's what we're doing. That's what church is. Church is there to stand when our prayers don't get answered on this side of glory. God promised us healing, but he didn't always promise it here. And so we stand with those who have suffered unbelievable loss. And we stand with those who have a testimony to share. And Parker will bear scars and Elijah will bear scars. Some of them will be seen and some will be unseen. But my prayer for them is that they can go forward and talk about how God showed up that day and how God continues to show up. Don't be surprised, beloved, when fiery trials come.